Good morning. How's it going? Hey. <laughs> um, so we have like the front row and then we have vacancy and then we have the back row people blowing bubbles. I saw that. <laughs> We're so glad you all are here this morning. What you think about the lesson? It wasn't timely or anything, was it? No, amazing how God works. Um, let me open us in prayer, and then I just have a, um, a little bit of an announcement and something I want to share with you, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you. We thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, I thank you for just all the details that go into um, bringing together a Wednesday morning. Um, I thank you for the women that are here. I thank you for the leaders that we have that you've provided I thank you for the child care workers. Um, God, I just pray a, a blessing on this place this morning. I pray that our ears would be open wide, um, God, and that you would just prick our hearts and encourage us in a special and unique way. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I had all these things I wanted to share, and at first I told Chris, I said, I think I just need like five minutes, and then um, Ron's bestie is what we call him. He came and spoke to our staff yesterday, and so I texted her after. I said, I think I need 10 minutes, which, of course, you know, Chris in time, she's like, oh, you really have five minutes. So I'm going to talk really fast. Um, but I wanted to share something with you. Um, a handful of us went to a conference on Thursday and Friday for the IF Gathering called IF Lead, and um, it was wonderful. Um, lots of really good speakers, and we had some time the evening in between. Um, we stayed down in Dallas and had a chance to kind of visit and come up, you know, with ideas. And you know, just it's it's fun to you know get in a, a room with sisters in Christ and just talk about dreams and visions of what what we where and what we think God is leading us to do. And so, I've had this message and kind of this exhortation kind of playing in the back of my head um, for a while. And so um, just thought, to, you know, with all the timing and the things going on between last week and the, the weeks prior, it just seemed like a, a good time. So um, I wanted to start by just um, asking for a show of hands of who is here this morning because you were invited to Bible study. Okay, so we've got a handful. The rest of you, maybe you go here, you've come before. Think about the very first Bible study you ever went to and what it was that, that got you there. Um, I'm just going to share my own story, and I'm going to do it really briefly. I'm not going to go back to, like, birth or anything, because Chris would have a heart attack if I went back that far. Um, but um, 17 years ago, my husband and I moved to Flower Mound. It was home for him, so new, new for me, but familiar to him. Um, and my best friend, I don't know if she's in here, Shelly in here, at the time, um, she invited slash signed me up, really without my knowing, um, to go to Bible study. Um, I was coming from a working environment, um, you know, into staying home, and we didn't even have kids yet, and so I was like, what am I going to do with all my time? And so she had signed me up for this, it was called Community Bible Study. I grew up in a Christian home, you know, it wasn't a new thing to me, but I'd never really done a Bible study before. And really, the only way that I can explain it is that first Bible study, we did Luke, and I felt like, literally, like this veil had been lifted. And you hear that saying all the time, and it was confusing because I thought, you know, I've always known the Lord. I've never lived in a home that wasn't following Christ. And so, you know, what was the difference? And the more I learned and was sitting under other women that were wise and patiently mentored me um, is really when I became familiar with the term of transformation. And, and that's really what I can attribute it to. Um, my passion for the Lord and for his word just grew and was nurtured through Bible study. And, you know, I, I firmly believe that, you know, he puts us on a path and, and we, allows us to get exposed to different things and different people um, at seasons in our life to bring him glory. And so 17 years ago, if you told me I'd be standing up here doing what I do today, I would have, well, when I would have ran, <laughs> but I also would not have believed you. Um, because it's, you know, God works in, in funny ways, funny me, like at our expense a lot, but, um, but that is the way he works. And so it's that transformation, I think, that I, I feel, to me, it's contagious. And, you know, once you have that and you see the power of God's word and how he works and what it's like to be in a community of believers, and, you know, just before this, there were five of us sitting in the back praying with Chris, that doesn't happen, you know, in a secular environment, and yet... How many of us have friends or neighbors or family members that they reside in the secular environment? They never get a chance to circle up with four other women and pray. And so really what I want to share with you this morning, um, I could 
talk about it all day because it is something I'm very passionate about. It's why I feel like God has allowed me to do what I do. But um, I feel like we have a, a huge responsibility, um, and that is to bring, to share, to witness, whatever you want to call it, whatever your denominational buzzword is. Um, but it's, it's on our banner. It's go and make disciples. And so um, we, you know, we've, we've gradually shifted our focus in our women's ministry over the last few years, and, and we are getting really laser-focused. Um, and we've you know, started kind of peeling things away that we feel are distracting us from what God's sent us at this time to do. And it is discipleship and Bible study, and those are the two things that we are pouring all of our resources in. So we... Are you... Did you already announce next semester? Okay, I'm going to do that. Okay, so next semester, um, we, we've been actually talking about this prior to this summer of what comes next after Ecclesiastes. And so those of you that are like, Ecclesiastes, you know, what could possibly come next? Anything. <laughs> I'll do anything. <laughs> um, I love the timing of it because after this, what we are going to be doing is we're going to return to a gospel and we're going to do the gospel of John. And so if, if anyone has ever shared with somebody or even Ron when he preaches, you know, he'll tell a new believer, the best place you can start is in John. So who's done a John Bible study before? Okay, so here's what I'm going to challenge you. If you all gone, oh, I've done John. What am I going to do next semester? I better find another Bible study. Here's, here's what I'm going to encourage you. There's, I have three Ps for you. The first one is I want you to start praying today. I want you to start praying that God is going to reveal a name or names for you to start praying about people that may or may not be a believer, but in whatever fashion, they're not walking with the Lord. This is not in a judgmental way. This is in a, um, number two, partnering kind of a way. Who can I partner with that God is bringing to my mind? And so when I look at the spring and I'm thinking, okay, I'm signing up for John, even if I've done John 10 times, that, that should make you a little bit better at it. So um, look at it from that standpoint. Um, who can I bring alongside with me? Something we do with our leadership. When we have a brand new leader um, that, that is coming and going to be leading a small group, we buddy them with a leader that's been around for a little bit so that they have kind of that partner, you know, that can kind of help them and encourage them along the way. And that's what we're going to ask those of you that have maybe been in Bible study for a little while, um, or even you've just been in it one semester. Um, you don't have to be an expert. You have to have car keys. So, um, so think about that. Who can I bring? Who can I, you know, take responsibility for and, and be here? I was talking to Christine McCallum before we came over, and she said, wouldn't it be cool that if at the end of a Bible study semester your, your attendance actually increased instead of decreased because your girls were so evangelical in wanting to bring people alongside? I said, that has never happened, but what a fun challenge that could be if we issued that to, to grow, not just our own self, but the kingdom of God while we're doing it. So um, anyway... I didn't even get to like a third of what I was going to say because I went totally off my notes because I went on this side instead of staying back here. But here's my third part. <laughs> um, so it's pray, who are you going to partner with, and then presence. So ministry of presence. I know Chris talked to the leaders about this um, yesterday, but it is just being present. You know, we have a saying that we use um, around here in women's ministry. It's stay in your lane. Chris has a lane. When Chris gets out of her lane, no bueno. Um, when Becky gets out of her lane, no good. We all have a lane. You know, God's called us all to do something. I've had my car in the shop for the last 30 days because somebody didn't stay in their lane. <laughs> it is not a good thing when we get out of our lane. And so it may be that, you know, God's lane for you is to literally pick up your neighbor and bring her here with you and stay and commit to finishing a Bible study as that person's shepherd, friend, guide, whatever you want to call it. We're not telling you that you have to, you know, sit down and present the gospel every time you get together. You know, know where God is calling you. What is your lane and what, what role and responsibility do you have within that? Um, one more opportunity that we're going to make available. Um, we had decided this before we went to the, the IF conference. Um, but we are not going to be hosting the NIF gathering in the, in the spring. Um, we've done it the last two years, and so we're going to kind of go with the mantra of um, see one, do one. So if you have attended an IF gathering, an IF FLOMO, then we're going to encourage our women to go and host. 
We're going to provide training. We're going to be a resource for you if that's something that you want to do. Um, but we would love to see our community blanketed with host homes for the IF gathering in small groups instead of doing, you know, 500 here that we've got 500 plus in the community in people's homes. So we'll give you more information as, as time goes on, but those are kind of the two things that you can be thinking about and praying about. Who is it that God is asking me to partner with um, as we head into the spring? So, all right. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then Allison's going to come up and share her story. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you again um, for just the privilege of being able to partner in your kingdom. We thank you that, um, that you entrust us with such a, um, a great responsibility, but that you equip us and give us grace along the way. Lord, I just lift up Allison to you now. Um, I thank you for um, the story that you've given her. I thank you for her transparency and her willing to share, willingness to share I pray that you would just speak through her, just take away any nervousness or anxiety that she may have, God, and that you would just be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, y'all. My, my name is Allison Mills, and this is my smoke story. The smoke I was chasing was identity. My two younger sisters and I were born in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I lived there until I was 12 years old. My parents did not raise me to believe in God. I was raised with Christian morals, but there was never any reference to God or Jesus in our home. I believed that if I was good, and I tried hard, and I loved well, then that was good enough. My seed of anger at God and my feelings of loss began when I was seven years old when I woke up to my 18-year-old neighbor molesting me. I had no idea what was happening. He had broken into our house, and when he let me go, I ran for help. My mother chased him out of the house, called the police, and then asked if he had hurt me. But by that point, I had repressed the memory. He was found arrested and charged with indecent exposure to a minor because I didn't remember otherwise. At 11, trust and identity took a hit when I learned my father had gambled away everything we had. Mom packed my sisters and I up into a Jeep with everything we could fit in it and drove us to Arlington, Texas to start over. With a lot of hard work, things did get better between my parents and they just celebrated 35 years of marriage. Soon, upon entering the wonderful stage of puberty, the repressed memory from when I was seven began to come back in bits and pieces. After months of wrestling with this memory, my mother found me hysterically crying in my room. She confirmed everything that I had been wrestling with, and then she did what she thought was best, and she put me in therapy. This is when I began to contemplate suicide. Therapy did not work for me because I didn't want it to. I wasn't ready to talk about it. So I did a lot of searching during this time to understand what this meant about me. I wrote poetry and I questioned God. I read all the books on sexual abuse and I was scared. I learned that if I didn't let go of the past, I was never gonna be able to fully live or love. So I chose the identity of survivor. And then two things happened. First, I signed up for a camp for abused and neglected children. I became a camp leader for two 10-year-old girls, and I had signed up for the camp selfishly, thinking I could speak life into these girls as I was on the other side of the abuse. At camp, I was asked to pray aloud, read scripture, and witness to these two girls. However, they were the ones to speak life into me. Their passion for the Lord was a spark of inspiration, and this was my first glimpse of God's love and his love for me. Second, I entered the Miss Teen Arlington 2005 pageant. I had to have a platform I stood on, so I chose sexual assault awareness. It allowed me to share my story and overcome my experience. After the pageant, I took home the title and competed another four years, holding two titles after that. My identity was no longer wrapped up in being a victim of such a terrible crime, yet I still thirsted for more. I somehow knew that I was more than just a survivor and now a beauty queen. 
After graduating from Texas Tech University in, uh, with a bachelor's degree in photojournalism, I added photographer to my identity. I landed an internship with a prestigious photographer living in a small town, and I worked part-time for his wife, who is also the mayor of the town. The, this lasted a wonderful three months until one fateful night. While my boss and his wife were out of town one weekend, their son, who also lived in the same town and broke horses, invited me, along with a, another, uh, a bunch of other ranch hands, to go on a midnight hog hunt with dogs. And the hunt was amazing, but there was a lot of drinking involved. After dropping everyone off at the stables, he offered to give me a ride back to the house, and I agreed. He and a friend took me a different route, though, and that is when I was raped by both of them. The next morning, I called my father to come pick me up because I no longer felt safe. I felt so small and alone and afraid, and this is when I spiraled into a deep depression that included intense night terrors, anxiety, panic attacks, and a hatred toward a God who had let this much evil happen to me. It just wasn't fair. It was June 6, 2011, when I met my husband. Shortly after we began dating, we found out we were pregnant. And that Christmas, he took me to a church, and it felt like the pastor's words were just for me. Mary's unplanned pregnancy. How fitting. My husband was able to lovingly answer my questions about God and who Jesus is, and in such a way that it all started to make sense. I later heard a message about God's gift of free will, and my heart softened once again. I learned that God was not the one to hurt me. He gives us all the choice to do good or to do harm, and those men chose to do harm to me, not God. He, like a good father, was upset by the pain I felt, and I began to see how he pursued me all the time I felt so lost. I was seeking identity and titles and people and things in this whole world. I just needed him. He gave me the peace to forgive all those who hurt me and let go of all the wrongs that had been done. And it all finally started to make sense. And then he gave me the gift of my daughter. When my daughter was born, my heart did a whole 180. Seeing her and hearing her, I filled up instantly with a new kind of love I had never known. And in that moment, I truly understood God's love for me. Only imagined it must be a thousand times greater. God let me feel his immense love for me. I felt my heart may explode. I heard him clearly. This is how much I love you. And I understood completely and deep in my gut. I knew that God was real, and I knew without a doubt that he loved me fiercely. A year later, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and I was baptized. And I realized my identity is that I am his daughter. I'm still a new Christian, but I know for a fact that he is a redeemer and a restorer. He took my broken heart and filled it full of purpose and hope and true joy. He was always in constant pursuit of me even before I knew him, and that makes me love my Savior that much more. And today I am where I am because of Christ alone. Wife, mother, photographer, survivor, that is who I am. But now my identity rests in whose I am. I am his. Heavenly Father, um... It's a broken, messed up world. And uh, you've got us here for a reason. Father, you brought us here today for a reason. I pray that you uh, make yourself known. Be clear, God. Open hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just get into it, shall we? Let's just do that. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. Last week, I wasn't here. Last week, Shauna was here. How much did you love that? Yeah, right? 
She was incredible. Last week, she talked about Ecclesiastes 3, the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, a time for everything, right? For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Turn, 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 right? God ordains it all. God controls it all. God can stop it all. And God has purpose in it all. And he is good How many people had a hard time thinking through that and believing that this week? How many times this week did you go, really, a season for this? Yeah, me too, me too. Well, I'll tell you what, um, we always say, God's timing is, he does this thing, guys, like, I have no idea who's talking or what they're saying. I have no idea when we write Lesson 6, A World of Injustice, that the biggest mass shooting in the history of our country happens two days before. But he does. And so we walk in here today, and it's, there's a heaviness, you know, and I don't think that um, that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for our hearts to break. But I just want you to know this, that you are here learning today about a God who planned this moment today, right now, no accident. He can control it, he can stop it, but he has purpose in it. How do we deal with the unfairness of life? How do we possibly reconcile the really, really, really dark shadows of injustice and oppression? Big, huge questions, right? But how about this one? How about the biggest one? How can I trust that God is sovereign and in control when evil is prospering and it's everywhere? How do I do that? Well, Solomon approaches the exact same moment in time, if you will, and the same questions that we have. He lays them out. And so we're going to dig into it. We're going to look at it and see what he asks and see what God has to say about it. We're going to talk about injustice, we're going to talk about oppression, and then we're going to talk about what we choose to do with it in light of who he is and what's happening in our worlds. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Ecclesiastes 3, and we're going to go through the text that starts in verse 16. And I'm going to read this passage to you first, and then we're going to break it down into a couple of parts. So follow along with me, Ecclesiastes 3, starting in 16. Moreover, now notice that word, moreover, in some of your Bibles it says furthermore. That marks a change in emphasis, okay? That word matters. It's connecting what we just went through a week or two ago, all the seasons, all the things that God has control of, moving from a time for everything into some discouraging observations and grievances, So that's where we're moving. So he says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge. He'll judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, and for that is his lot. So who can bring him to see what will be after. Lots of big, giant, heavy, discouraging, frustrating things he's talking about. 
he kind of breaks it into two pieces, and that's what we're going to do. He talks about the wickedness of this world in verses 16 and 17. And then in 18 and following, he talks about mortality. So the first part, wickedness, let's just go there for a minute. Look at verses 16 through 17. He says, moreover, I saw. In your homework, I asked you what phrase was repeated over and over. And there are different things and different perspectives. But what I was looking at was the fact that everywhere he said, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. He is witnessing with his own eyes, with his own life, these atrocities. Right? He's not talking third hand, right? He's saying, I saw these things and I'm frustrated. Left to our own devices, wickedness wins. He's basically saying, guys, even in the places of righteousness and justice, meaning a court of justice where a judge is supposed to preside and things are supposed to go the way they're supposed to go, in places of righteousness, that may, what are some most righteous places you can think of? You know what I first thought of? I thought of marriages, I thought of the church. I thought of relationships that God has created to be these beautiful places, these beautiful presentations of his relationship with us. And even there, there is wickedness. Injustice, it highlights the wickedness of man when he's left to his own devices. Listen, when you look at verses 16 and 17, I want to challenge you to think about something. I want to challenge you to think about this. Sin is not learned. Sin is not learned. You know, the minute that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, our DNA was broken. Do you see that? We, we now walk around with broken DNA. We are fractured. We are sinful. I didn't have to teach my kid to lie to me, right? It just came about naturally. Both of them. Let me clarify. Let's be very clear. You don't teach sin. You're born with a sinful heart that desires to do and desires to elevate self, to be quite frankly. But in verse 311 from last week, we remember hearing that Jesus has put, God has put an eternity in our hearts, so we long for something better. Let me ask you something. We talk about the idea of sin and being, being sinful and broken before we accept Jesus. Let me ask you this. 80% of all books sold are what kind? What would you say? Self-help, baby. Why is that? Because no matter what you believe, what you say you believe, you all believe something, there is an eternity put in your heart that desires and yearns for something bigger and better than what you see. We want for something better than what we see on the news, don't we? We do. And even if you can't put a name on it, it is what it is. Gunfire spraying innocent people is evidence of a fractured, sinful world. But verse 311, eternity in our hearts is evidenced by three-hour-long lines of people donating blood. Amen? God is there. He's active. He's real. But the thing is, we decide that we hate wickedness and how could we love a God who allows those things and we don't look at the three-hour line of people donating blood. And you know what else? Let me just get real, real fast. Um, we also want mercy for ourselves, don't we? Well, I'm not as bad. I'm not as bad as that guy. What if... What if, in a perfect world, like, don't you love this? Okay, when you're, when you're going on a road trip, we road trip a lot. Like, we like to drive and everything. And don't you just, like, when somebody comes flying past you going 150 miles an hour, you're like, ooh, I hope a cop gets him, right? And then when a cop flies past you, you're like, yes, justice. Except when it's me. <laughs> Except when I'm, when, when I'm going 50 in a 45 on 407, be with me, Jesus. But I... Right? I don't want that moment to be the moment that I get justice served. I want mercy. Lord, I came from church. Cop don't care. We're not innocent. We're not innocent. We, we want to take our sin and compare it next to the guy that's worse. Do you want to compare your sin next to the, next to the girl that's, that's not as bad? I don't know. That's too much work, man. Let God do that. 
But we are not innocent. Wickedness has its way if we're left to our own devices. In verse 18 through 22, he goes on to talk about mortality. This section can be confusing. A lot of people start going, is it saying that dogs don't go to heaven? Because dogs have to go to heaven. Guys, dogs have to go to heaven. I'm with you, totally with you. There's things we don't know. God is mysterious. He doesn't spell it out for us. But I will tell you this, in verses 18 through 22, he's making clear some things. He even actually uses this word in verse, I think it's 18. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see they themselves are but beasts. The word testing there, a better definition than what you're thinking is make clear. Make clear. He's basically saying there that, that while all these things, this injustice is occurring, God is making very clear that we all end up in the same place we go back to being dirt. And, and also, I need you to understand something. Very, this is really super important. He's not necessarily talking here about heaven or hell. When he says the one place in verse 20, you know what he's talking about? The grave. He's talking about literal mortal ending. Literal mortal ending. He's not talking about um, he, he's not talking. He's talking about earthly flesh that shares a final destiny. We both have the same final destiny with our physical bodies. Amen. God will judge them all. He goes on to talk about these big thoughts and questions. Okay, so if we both like hang out with Fido the dog, I don't want to say my dog's name because that'd be real weird. You know, and we both die, we both turn to dust, and you know, whatever, everybody moves on. Then, then what happens after we die? Is it just over? He asks these big, giant questions in verse 21 and 22 huge questions that every one of us, every one of us in here, every one of us out there who doesn't believe in a God or thinks they don't believe in a higher being, they ask this question, and it's this. He says in verse 21 So who knows? Whether the spirit of man goes up or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And he goes on in verse 22 to say, who can bring him to see what will be after him? He's asking the biggest question we're faced with as human beings on this earth. I guarantee you my friend Allison asked that question many times when she was wrestling with how a God who loves could allow things happen that seem unredeemable. So what? What happens? Well, he's asking the biggest question, but he's asking a question, honestly, that only Jesus could adequately answer. In your homework, remember, I brought you to this place where I said, hey, who's the only one that's been there? Jesus. He's the only one that's been beyond and come back, right? I want to give you something to think about here. Think about this. Solomon may not have had the name of the man Jesus Christ on his lips yet, but we are hopeful and comforted to know that he sees the big picture in chapter 12. Remember when we covered that in the very first week of homework? Chapter 12, he recognizes that God is to be feared and obeyed. So we know he knew, but we also know that during this time, he was questioning. Anybody ever questioned I sat with my daughter this last week while I was out, and I'll tell you what, man, we had the best conversation. I told all my people, I said, that alone was why I wasn't here. It's because I was supposed to, on Tuesday night, sit with my daughter and have a deep conversation about life. And you know what was, you know what was the most interesting thing for me? It was this moment of saying to her, um, there are going to come times when you as a Christian, um, you don't believe in Christians anymore because you get mad at them. But you know what you do believe in? You believe in Jesus. The Old Testament says this. I mean, the Old Testament is that, let me lay this out in a way that I thought was just fantastic. It's, you think about this. The Old Testament asks questions. Okay? The Old Testament prophecy and promises, they're all made. Okay? But in the New Testament, you know what happens? The New Testament, the questions are answered, and the prophecies and the promises are what? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. Old Testament, we're asking questions. New Testament, we're getting the answers. So when we look at Solomon and we sit here and see that he's asking the biggest question we could ever ask, we realize where we stand on this side of Jesus Christ, we know the answer. Amen? 
What could possibly happen after you die? Well, I'll tell you this. Matt Chandler says it this way. I thought this was a great breakdown. Everyone, regardless of what your belief system is, you have to answer this question one of three ways. Every single one of you, no matter what you believe. You either believe that after you die, nothing happens. Biggest gamble. That's the biggest gamble there is in this belief system in this world. You believe, if you don't believe that nothing happens, you possibly believe that reincarnation occurs. And you know what that means? Essentially, that means that you come back in a form of something different and you're making up for karma, okay? So there was imbalances in your life and you did some bad stuff, like you were speeding, you know, in a school zone or whatever. And so then you come back as a butterfly and you're going to make right that sin that occurred in your life and you have a new opportunity. Sounds beautiful. You know what the problem with that is? If you're coming back to make right some imbalances, you better remember what they were. How many people have been reincarnated and come back and go, yeah, I remember. This is who I was. I was this guy. I did this. They don't. Even people that believe, even that buy into this, can't tell you who they were and what they did before. So it doesn't make sense. It makes God this, this um, i got to pay penance for something and I'm never going to win. So you either believe that there's nothing or you believe that you come back and you fix stuff that you didn't know you broke or, and a lot of evangelicals believe this and a lot of denominations believe this, you believe in the idea of scales, okay? You believe that there's this deity that sits on the throne and a scale is in front of him and good stuff is piled on one side And then the bad stuff you did is piled on the other side. And then you stand on the other side and you cross your fingers and you just hope, right? And you don't know until you get there. Just cross your fingers. Does the good stuff outweigh the bad stuff? Good, you go to heaven, yay. Does the bad stuff outweigh the good stuff? Well, then you're going to face eternal punishment for your wrongness. That makes God unjust. Do you see that? Can I just say this? Can I? Well, I'm going to say it. I don't even if you say no. If you believe that you have to do, you have to have more good stuff on your scale to get up there to heaven and get an attaboy, that's a broken, messed up theology, and that is not what Jesus came to die for. Because here's the thing if you believe that, that makes God unjust. You know why it makes God unjust? Because when you walk in a court of law, let's say you walk in a court of law, bless your heart, and you, you murdered somebody. Or maybe, let's say you murdered some people. How about 10? How about that? That's a good number. You murdered 10 people. You walk in, you're going before a judge, and he's going to be just, right? And he takes into account all the details of the crime you've committed. No question you've committed that crime. You killed those 10 people. Witnesses saw it. We all know. But hey, guess what? You go to church every Sunday and Wednesday. And you, you know, you're a Boy Scout leader. And you drive carpool. And sometimes you, you, you really count out your items when you're in line in the 15 item or less. And you really obey that rule guideline. You think that judge is going to say, ah, you know what, I'll tell you what, because you got a lot of good stuff stacked up and you really only have this one really bad thing. I mean, it's 10 people, but whatever. I'm going to let go. We're going to let it go. Would you want to judge like that? I don't care who you are. You kill 10 people, you go to prison or worse. An unjust judge would let that happen. That's not who our God is. And let me raise the bar a little bit farther. If you claim to believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of God, and that he came and lived and died for your sins, and you say, I have to do a certain number of good things or I don't get into heaven, you just undid everything he did on the cross. Do you understand? I sat with my daughter and we talked about sin and I had to have a conversation with her about the fact that there are people that believe that there are some sins that Jesus' blood doesn't cover. What? That undoes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you buy into the third thing, the scales thing, then I promise you this, you want the blood of Christ to be covering that bad side of the scale because that's what happens. When you know Jesus, you approach a throne and you got your good stuff and it's, you know, cute and everything. And then you got your bad stuff. And I promise you, you may not be shooting people out windows, but you are doing things that if you approach the throne of God, you're eternity in hell. Aren't you glad you came? 
But Jesus is the one who gets in the way of all that, man. He came, lived, and died, covers it, takes all the bad stuff off the scale, and God says, boy, come on in. That's where we get messed up. And there are people who are sitting in this room right now who feel like they need to stack some more things on their good side of the scale. Stack things on the good side of the scale, but don't stack things if you think that's going to buy you a ticket to heaven. Here's what we know. We know this. Write this down. In Romans 3.23, we know this. Who has sinned in this world? Every single one of us. Those of you who are speeding in school zones and shooting people out buildings, and those of us who look all pretty and obey the 15 items or less, we are all sinful in the eyes of God, and none of us can approach that throne. But while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. You know, he didn't wait until you got your stuff cleaned up, did he? If he was waiting till I got my stuff cleaned up, if I waited to come to Bible study, I have a similar story than Dawn. If I waited until I had my stuff cleaned up, until I was all, had it all together, I would have missed it. Allison didn't wait. What if she waited? God opens things. God reveals things. God makes things clear for a time such as this. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of, of, the, of, of, of being able to approach the throne. And Christ died for us. In Romans 10, 9 through 10 and 13, it says this. But here's, all, here's how you fix that. Here's how you set your scale state straight. You know what you do? You confess it. You say to him, remember me. Do you remember that this week? We talked about the thieves on the cross. And you remember what that one guy, what he said to Jesus. He looked at him and he said what? Remember me. It wasn't like he had to have some fancy King James prayer, people. I'm the worst prayer there is. God laughs. I can hear him almost laughing at my prayers. You laugh at my prayers. He loves it. Remember me. That's all. I confess, Lord, that I'm sinful. I believe that you died. You were buried. You raised to life. You're sitting at the right hand of God right now, and you will be saved. John, in the, in the book of John, huh, weird, we're going to be doing that in the spring. Um, in the book of John, Jesus goes on and he's talking about what's coming. And he says this. Now remember, we're all, all of this is leading us to an answer to Solomon's great question. In John 5, verses 25 through 29, I'm going to read it from the message. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but just listen to the words. This is what he says. It's urgent that you get this right. The time has arrived, I mean right now, when dead men and women will hear the voice of the Son of God and hearing will come alive. When he says dead here, he's not meaning people that are dead and buried in the grave like Fido and all the stuff we talked about earlier. He's talking about dead souls walking this earth. They will hear the voice of the Son of God. And then skipping down to verse 29. The time is coming when everyone dead and buried will hear his voice. Those who have lived the right way will walk into a resurrection life. And those who have lived the wrong way into resurrection judgment. There will come a time when you stand before the throne and you say, I sat in Rock Point Church on October whatever this is, and I heard about the word of Jesus Christ, and I heard that he's the son of God, and I heard that he can get rid of all the bad stuff on my scales. And you know what? I just kind of went, eh, eh, I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat at Corner Bakery. This week is hard. It's been hard. Whether you believe or you don't believe, it's been hard. And you know what? It's hard for me and it's hard for Dawn and those of us back there praying. It's hard for me to imagine a life where I don't have hope in something bigger than this world. It's hard for me to imagine walking around and not believing that God loved me so much that he sent his son to live and walk around in my neighborhood. It's hard for me to believe that this is all there is. I would rather believe this and be wrong in verses um, four, one, I mean, chapter four, one through three, he goes on to talk about oppression. More good news. Wow, this is so uplifting, right? Verses one through three go like this. Again, 
I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and he has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. A couple of things we need to recognize. When he's using the word oppressed here, that word, when it's used over and over in the Bible, usually refers to slaves or poor people. Okay? So just know that. He's talking about real oppression. I mean, I'm sure you're oppressed. I'm sure I'm oppressed. But let's not make light of the fact that he's talking about deep, dark places that are hard to understand. He sees three things. Basically, he sees this. He says oppression and, and exploitation of those in need. He sees that, right? He's seeing it happen. He's seeing the pain in the lives of innocent people. And the third thing he's seeing is what just gets me the worst. He sees unconcern by those who should give comfort and help. Oppression will always exist under the sun, period. We know that's true. However, in verse 2, it's not like he's condoning suicide or abortion or murder or anything that we try to read into this that's not true. What he's saying is he's recognizing the reality of where we live and what we're going through. And he's saying, it's hard, guys. It's hard to watch the news. Okay, so what do we do with that? You know, I mean, we can close the book and just go and have real depressing lunch at Corner Bakery. What do we do with that? Listen, um, you've heard me talk before about Belize. It's a passion for my family. It's where we go together as a family on mission. And I had this funny thing um, that I may have talked about it before. You never know. Um, But I'm a fixer. I want things fixed. I want everything to be better. So we arrive in Belize from Flower Mound, right? I'm barely over the fact that there's no AC. I'm hardly surviving the fact that I am absolutely dripping. And let me just clarify something. I did not, cotton kills. Did you know that? When you're sweating, don't wear cotton. I was not wearing dry fit. So it was also a bad thing. So I was super oppressed when I was serving Jesus in Belize. That was facetious. I was not oppressed at all. We go with a team of people, and we've gone several times, and it's such a gift. And I think um, Don would agree. Like, every time we go, watching what God does within our team is part of the beauty of the whole thing, right? Like, it's like sometimes I've realized I'm not even really there for anybody in Belize. I'm there because God wants to teach me or show me or encourage me or whatever through our team. There was this one particular time we walk in, and the very first day in the school, this is how it looks. We walk in, and... um, we walk in, and we walk into this, it's like a chapel, but it's not what you think. It's like a building that's real super hot, okay? It's real, built, real super hot building. There's, there's ceiling fans, like, that line the ceiling, okay? And all these kids, oh, I don't know, hundreds and millions of kids, file into this place, and they're going to put on a, um, a little performance for us, like an assembly. You know, like you would go to your elementary school and watch your kids do an assembly. And so when, whenever we're about to arrive, we were, we're always told this, yeah, we have no idea what's coming. It could be 20 minutes. It could be 20 hours. So drink water. It's very hot. There's no air movement. And you're standing, and, you're, and these kiddos are singing their hearts out, and they're doing the Pledge of Belize, whatever that is. And, and you're, you know, you're just trying to just not think about you know, that you're sweating and there's rashes happening. You're trying not to think about all the dumb things. And so at this one particular trip, I'm standing next to this guy, and it's, again, it's the first day we're there, and he's standing next to me, and he leans over to me in the middle of one song, no lie, and he goes, we got to fix those fans. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, dude, I've been here five years. we got to fix the fans. They've never moved. Fans have never moved. He's like, and I go, yeah, 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 it's okay. Don't worry. Just If you need air, just kind of stand. There's one little open doorway. Just kind of stand over there. And he's like, no, 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 I'm saying And he's telling me all this, like, during the Pledge of Belize. And he's saying, I'm not joking. Like, there's, like, a switch over there. And I think he's an electric, like, I think he's a mechanical mind, okay? Because the way he was, I could tell he's been spent, like, a lot of time thinking about how to fix the fans. (laughs) And he's like, 
there's a switch. If we could work our way, we would flip the switch and maybe, and I, I was just like, I love your heart. Stop fixing. Stop fixing. Look what God's doing right now. And do that. Right? I mean, I had to, I mean, trust me, I've had my fix the fans moments too when I've been in Belize many, many times. A couple of times it ended up with God basically saying to me, go pick up litter, man. Just do something. Go see what I'm doing and jump in and do it. You don't have to fix. You just look to see what God's doing and join. Isaiah 58, 10 says this. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. If you spend yourselves, that's what the NIV says. The King James says, if you draw out thy soul, what do you do with oppression? You just sit around and get mad and write stuff on Facebook? Or do you go look at what, see what God's doing and, and do that? The, this author, Steve Corbett, he wrote this book called When Helping Hurts. And he says this, and I thought, oh, man, this is so exactly what we need to hear. This is what you need to hear when you're in Belize or when you're here or when you're in your number one mission field, your home. We're not bringing Christ to the poor communities. He has been active in these communities since the creation of the world, sustaining them. Hebrews 1.3 says, by his powerful word, he is sustaining them. Hence, a significant part of working in poor communities involves discovering and appreciating what God has been doing for a really long time. We don't have to fix fans. We've got to see what he's doing and do that. You have a heart for oppression? Go see what God's doing and do it. You have a heart for the oppressed? Go find somebody in a neighborhood who no one has reached out to because they look different or they sound different or maybe they smell different and bring them to Bible study. I'm just saying. Maybe that's what you're supposed to hear today. I have no idea. I'll tell you this, Jill Briscoe, one of the speakers at our If Lead, said this, and this is like one of my very favorite things ever. She says this, but, but what do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're afraid and, you, and life is hard and circumstances don't allow it and there's so many things, I just can't do it. I'm, I'm scared, God. I don't want to talk to that person over on the other side of my fence because then they may let their dogs out all the time and bark and it would be awkward and I'm so scared. And you know what Jill says? She says this, then do it scared. You do it scared. You think the guys, when the Red Sea started to part, do you remember what happened? You remember they had to step out there? You think they weren't scared? You act in obedience when you see oppression and courage will follow. How about that? We do stuff scared. Well, listen, they told me not to look at the clock. And I can't see it because I have my glasses on. I have no idea what time it is. But I will say this. We're going to close. And I just want to give you some thoughts as we close. How can I trust that God is sovereign and in control when evil prospers? You know how you do that? Here's how you do that. You choose to react and live. When we went to Belize a few years ago... <clears throat> That's what our family came home with. We said, how are we going to react to the atrocities in this world? And how are we going to live out what we believe? React and live. Every day, every moment, every place we go. You know how we got to do that? We have to turn to God in our reaction. And we have to depend on him in how we live. That's what we have to do. I thought of two things when I think about react and live. I thought of this. Verse um, John 16:33. a lot of you know this one. And it's this, it's, um, I can't see now for real. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Words from Jesus. Take heart. 
And the second part of that is Philippians 4.8. That's what I thought about. I thought, okay, God, how do I react and live? I take heart and I remember that bad stuff is going to happen and I'm not surprised by it, but instead I rely on you. And the second part is I choose to be changed. I choose to be changed. Philippians 4.8 says, change your focus. Bad stuff happens, but good stuff is happening. People are shooting things and people, and it's terrible, but people are lining up to help each other who don't know each other. Verse 8 in Philippians 4 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, think about these things when everything's going good. Because when everything's going good, this is not hard for me to think about. Amen? It's hard for me to think about when, when injustice and oppression is rampant. Take heart, be changed. Satan desperately wants for you to scream mercy, and he wants to discourage you and direct your life. Anne Lamott says this, I can't change the past, the truth, or what? You. Don't try to fix the stuff you can't fix. There are ceiling fans everywhere broken. I sat with my daughter and told her that. You can't change history. You can't change truth, and you can't change other people. What can you change? You can change your heart. You can change your actions. Injustice and oppression will come, but we react and live. We take heart and we let God change us. I thought about some of the common things that I've been feeling this week, and I thought, God, what do you want to do with these feelings, and where do you want to take them? Because I don't think it's Facebook, and I don't think it's um, to go rant about politicians. I don't think it's that, honestly. That's just me. Here's what I came up with. I came up with this. When we take heart and let God change us, anger turns into compassion. Be mad, breathe in, breathe out. God is on the throne. Amen? When we take heart and let God change us, experience turns to understanding. What my friend Allison went through gives her something to take and comfort others with. He comforted her. She comforts others. He uses her story. His heart broke for her. His heart breaks for you. But don't let it be a waste. The third thing is complaining turns to rejoicing. Do you remember that whole part about rejoicing in your lot? Remember that was your inheritance? That's what God has given you right now. Whatever it is you have right now, that is what your lot is. You know what? I got news. That may be it. Your plans and dreams, my plans and dreams may not come to fruition. They just may not. This may be it. Do I complain more or do I rejoice more? God knows where you are and what your lot is. He knows my friends in Belize. He knows what their lot is. Fear turns to boldness. We won't be ruled by fear. We won't stay in our homes and not come out because we're afraid of evil. What we will do is claim his power, not ours. I am no good at being God, everybody. I'm terrible at it. So I'm going to let him do it, and I'm going to sleep at night. And finally, we're going to choose to let fixing, fixing, like fixing the fan, turn into doing what God is doing. Look and see what he's doing. He's doing stuff everywhere, man, everywhere. We just got to join him. Sometimes that means listening. Sometimes that means being present. Sometimes that means crying. Sometimes that means laughing. Sometimes that means bringing people to Bible study. You are dangerous to the enemy. There is nothing, nothing more dangerous than believers on the move. Look for what God is doing and join him. God is on the move. Be dangerous. Take heart. Be changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it's a hard week. It's a hard week. And um, 
what we know from Solomon's words especially is more hard weeks are coming. And so God, I ask on behalf of all of us, will you be present and show yourself you are on the move. We want to jump in and join you. And God, for those who don't know you, who, who are looking at this entire situation that's happening in this world and have no hope, God, I just lift them up to you, Father. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they wake up. There is a reason they are here. There is a reason they are hearing this today, Lord. Make yourself known to them. And Father, above all, we thank you that you loved us so much in this depraved, messed up, fractured, broken world that you sent your son to come down. No other quote unquote little G God has done that. Loved us so much. You came here to be broken for us. I can't even imagine. Thank you. And we thank you for all these things. And we thank you for the child care workers who stayed extra. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not too bad.